because of the importance of the current own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And finally, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. Everything was created for God's pleasure. Father, as we come before you and we examine this subject, Lord, of uh, uh, your eternity, Lord, that you are eternal, O Lord, and help us to keep in mind that we have been created to uh, live, uh, to exist eternally too, Lord, and it's our choice whether we want to spend that eternity with you in heaven or be eternally separated from you. And Lord, I pray that you'd impress this upon us, Lord. Speak to our hearts, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the past number of weeks, we've been doing a series on praise as a weapon. And we use that weapon to defeat the enemies in our lives. What are our enemies? Three. We have three enemies in this life. We have the world, the world system, the world's way of thinking, the flesh, our own carnal nature, which entices us to sin, and the devil. And the three act as a unit. The devil uses the world and the world's way of thinking to stir up the passions of our flesh, and that causes us to sin. The theme verse for this is, Let the high praises of God be in their mouths, and a two-edged sword in their hands. Psalm 149, verse 6. Okay, now I talked about two different kinds of praise and worship. One is thankfulness, where we thank God for what He has done, is doing, and will do for us. We're going to celebrate that next week. So we'll have a little deviation from this normal series next week. And we're going to be talking about the things that we need to be thankful for. But there's also what I call adoration. And that's where we praise God for who and what He is. And the way that I've been doing uh, that is by going through the what are called the attributes of God. These include, but not are restricted to, God is love, God is holy, God is just, God is faithful, and God is true, veracity or truthfulness, and eternity. And then there's the omni-attributes, omnipresence, he's everywhere present, omnipotent, He's all-powerful. And number three, He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And we're going to look at all these in more detail in future messages. And the practical, as I've mentioned, of this series is that God wants us to be like Him. First of all, you've got to make your peace with God and get into a permanent relationship with Him. And then once we establish that, then He wants us to become more like Him. He wants us to become more loving people. 
He wants us to become a more holy people. He wants us to be just people, just and fair in all of our dealings with other people. He wants us to be faithful, faithful to Him and faithful to our commitments that we make in this life. And He wants us to be truthful too. The Bible says that God cannot lie. He cannot lie because that violates His you know, very nature to always give us the true story, the real story. And He wants us to uh, also be truthful in all of our dealings. You know, I mentioned before, you know, Jesus said in John 8, 44, that Satan is the father of all lies. So if you're going to lie to somebody, you're temporarily yielding control of your tongue over to the devil. And I don't think any of us really want to do that. So today, as I mentioned, God is eternal. Now, when we say God is eternal, what do we mean? You know, a simple uh, synonym for eternal is timeless. Am I right? It's a cinema. Okay, what does time mean? It means without time. In other words, time here on earth is, it, it really doesn't have the same reference for God that it has for us. You know, an illustration of this, you know, say you're watching a parade and you get there on the curbside or, you know, your lawn chair or whatever, and you watch the parade march past you one event at a time. God doesn't see that parade like that. He's like a man that is sitting on a helicopter watching the same parade. And he sees everything right there. He sees the beginning. He sees the one the the ones that you see as it's passing you by, and he sees the end. That's the way he views all time. That's how God can make these predictions, like predicting the uh, birthplace of the Lord Jesus Christ seven hundred years before it actually happened. You know, this makes sense to think of uh, e eternal as timeless because, you know, time is often described as the fourth dimension. You know, what are the three dimensions? You know, there's height, there's width, there's length, right? Those are the three dimensions. Who made those dimensions? Well, God did. So if, you know, time is a fourth dimension, God made time too. He made it so we would have a time to live in, at least our the time that we spend here on earth. Now when we say that God is eternal, it means that he had no beginning and will have no ending. As a proof text, you know, the classic te text for that is Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You know, it's, it's interesting because uh, that word are is not in the original. Oh, okay. Sorry. 
pressed the wrong button there. You see there? You see R? It's in italics. That means it's not in the original language. So literally he says, you, God. In other words, you are there at the beginning of time and throughout eternity. You are the God of the universe. Now, unpacking Psalm 90, verse 2. It says, to everlasting. When it says to everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, what does to everlasting? Well, you know, I'm sure that most folks would agree that means that God is going to continue into eternity future. You know, but the converse, you know, the first part of that, from everlasting, must also be true. At, that's at the other end of the spectrum. In other words, from everlasting means God had no beginning. He's always been there. I remember when I was a boy of about maybe 10 or something, I was talking to my sister and I I'd said something to the effect, uh, you know, about God... Uh, you know, you know, I, I, I didn't understand things, but she she made uh, uh, the statement. Uh, you know, she said there always was a God. What you know, always was a God. That just blew my absolutely blew my ten year old mind. You know, I I just I found hard to wrap my head around that. But you know, I, I knew it when she said that. I knew that it was true. You know, it's hard for us to grasp that concept because we have all had a, a moment of our birth when we started, you know, living or exist, existing right here on earth. You know, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our mind that God has always been around there from the very beginning of time. Okay? So... Um, this runs contrary to what the LDS, and the LDS uh, means the Mormons, uh, they have this concept that God did have a beginning. In fact, they carry this step uh, a little step further and say that God was once a man just like we are. And then he was eventually exalted into Godhood. And that, uh, that this is going to be true of us too, that one day we can become gods ourselves. You know, that's standard Mormon doctrine. You know, they don't, you know, necessarily want to tell you that. But if you question them closely, yes, they'll say, yes, I do hope to become a god someday. Now, Walter Martin, you know, my mentor, he was talking, you know, he was, you know, preaching uh, on Mormon doctrine one time and there was a bunch of Mormon missionaries that would follow him around everywhere and they would uh, you know question him during the question and answer and so they started uh, this uh, you know uh, fact that the Mormons expect to become gods and uh, he, uh, he says you know I'll ask the Mormon missionaries to answer that you know and they had uh, the spokesman for the group stand up and he says uh, do you believe that you're going to become a god one day and he said well in, uh, you know he tried to sign humble you know and uh, I just humbly uh, hope that I will become a god someday and Martin says you know well do you know where that doctrine came from <laughs> 
And he said, yes, you know, it comes from uh, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. You know that. You've been teaching that, uh, you know, for the last uh, uh, few weeks. And, he, and Dr. Martin said, no, actually, that comes from the Bible. And so he says, uh, uh, you know, that should make it more valid. And he had everybody turn to Genesis chapter 3. The temptation that, that uh, uh, Satan gave to Eve. And of course, Adam too. And it says, you know, uh, you know, uh, where God had said, if you partake of the forbidden fruit, you know, you disobey me, you will surely die. And Satan tells her, you shall surely not die. You know, God's holding out on you. He says he knows that in the day you partake of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall be as gods. Knowing good and evil, so that was Satan's. That, that, you know, his first temptation was to doubt the word of God, but that was his second temptation. You shall become as gods, and really, when we, you know, you know, that's the story of the human family: is we all try to be our own god. Isn't that true? That's self-will. That's what sin is all about, self-will. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to run my life the way I want it to. Not how God wants me to. I'm going to run it the way I want to. So they, therefore, teach the wrong concept of God. And they teach a God concept of God that is totally contrary to uh, biblical revelation. You know, Brigham Young, their prophet, once said, How many gods there are? I don't know, but there's never been a time when there was not God. And what does the, the Word of God say? It says in uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe. And understand me. Is that clear enough? I want you to know it. I want you to believe it. I want you to understand it. So he should get your attention by that. This is important. This is what he's saying. It's important what I have to say next. That I am he. Before me there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. No Mormon is ever going to make it. And that goes, you know, if, if you think that God had a beginning, then who made God? And who made who made God? And who made who made who made God? You know, and you get into what's known as the fallacy of infinite regression. Brothers and sisters, it's a lot easier just to accept by faith that God has been God throughout all eternity. That takes a whole lot less faith. They teach a different God. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, if you know, a prophet arises and speaks out in the name of other gods, you shall not listen to them. And that's exactly what you have with Mormonism. They're speaking out in the name of a different God than what we know of. Now, Jesus also is eternal. 
Just like probably uh, God the Father is being spoken of in Psalm 90 verse 2, Jesus himself is described as never having had a beginning. Micah 5 verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of Israel. And we saw that that is referring to Jesus Christ. This is a prediction of his birth. But it continues on, whose going for, goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So Jesus himself, God the Son, has existed from eternity past. Everybody see that? It's the same word, uh, phrase there, uh, from everlasting. It's the same phrase that's used there in Psalm 90 verse 2. Scripture, of course, predicts the birthplace of the, the Lord Jesus Christ 700 years before it became a reality. And it further states that he pre-existed in eternity past, just like God, since he is God the Son. John 1.1 1, 1. Everybody should be able to quote that by now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? In the beginning, you know what that means? From eternity past. And it stands to reason, too. If you believe in the eternal Father, then you've got to also believe in the eternal Son. You know, another scripture, you know, that you are my son, this day I've begotten you. And I believe that's a relationship. It's just referring to the relationship between the father and the son. Okay, now, the practical of all this is that we have been created to also exist eternally. Not in the eternal past, but into the eternal future. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6, 26 and 27. Let us make God in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it seems obvious. You know, by the way, this image of God, there's a lot of meaning that, you know, I don't think we can really fully grasp exactly what it means. But one thing for sure is it makes very plain that part of the image of God is that we now have eternity of being. Although, of course, we had a beginning, there will never come an, a time when any of us, that is referring to all humanity, will cease to exist. We're either going to live forever in the presence of God, or we're going to live in a state of eternal separation from Him. Now, another group, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, they don't deny hell. You know, their founder, a man by the name of Charles Taze Russell, was deathly afraid of hell. Said that he went around riding on sidewalks inside the buildings, warning people about the hellfire. And then one day he had a discussion with a man that denied the existence of hell. And after that discussion, he decided that that man was right, that hell did not exist. 
And one of the scriptures that they quote, you know, these people that don't believe in the existence of hell, you know, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. And they like to quote that verse and they say, there you have it. The soul is destroyed. It's annihilated. It's no longer in existence. That's their argument anyway. It ceases to exist. Now the misunderstanding here is that the word destroy there in uh, Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 does not mean annihilate or vaporize. You know, they think of, you know, you ask a Jehovah's Witness, what do you mean by, you know, it's destroyed? You mean like you take a, a phaser, like in Star Trek, you know, and I point, you know, right at this chair, and it glows for a little bit, and then uh, vanishes away, you know, it's vaporized. Is that what you mean? Well, that's what they think. But the word there, destroy, in Matthew 10, 30, uh, 28, you know what it means? It doesn't mean completely destroyed. It means to ruin or be rendering, rendered unfit for its pur- the purpose of its creation. Good illustration is Matthew uh, 9, verse 17. Nor do they put wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. That's the same word that was used back there in uh, uh, Matthew ten twenty-eight. You know, fear him that has the power to ruin both soul, body uh, and soul in uh, hell. So the Greek word ruin there is the same word for destroy in Matthew 10:28. So destroy in that verse does not mean that it's annihilated. It doesn't mean that the wine skin is vaporized. But it is you know the wine skin was made for one purpose. What was the purpose of a wine skin? To hold, to hold wine or hold any other liquid. But if it's been burst you know, which happens when you put the uh, new wine into old wineskins, it bursts, you know, it's split open. And now it's still a wineskin, but it's ruined. It can no longer be used for the purpose that it was uh, created for. So, what Matthew 10.28 is saying is that we are going to be ruined there in, in hell. That we won't be able to fulfill the purpose for which he created us. And what is God's purpose for us? Revelation 4.11 gives us an answer to that. And it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure or your will, they are and were created. 
So we were created to bring, bring pleasure to God. Do you bring pleasure to God? If you don't, you know, then you're not fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. We were created to bring him pleasure. And he receives, how do we bring him pleasure? Well, he receives pleasure when we fellowship with him. When we give him praise and honor and glory. You know, this is why our time of worship is so important, brothers and sisters. That's your time to come in here and praise and worship God and honor him. Give him glory. Amen? You're missing out on that if you come in late or if you skip it altogether. Now, it's only too obvious that if we are banished to exist forever. I say exist, brothers and sisters, because if you do not make that decision for Christ by the time you pass on from this earth, you are going to exist. You're not going to live. You know, Jesus talked about eternal life. Eternal life life referring to union. In this case, union with God. Now, when I say union with God, I don't mean in the sense of the uh, uh, Eastern religions. You know, you become one with God. No, you have that union with God when you're there to fellowship with Him, to praise and honor and give Him glory. If we don't make that uh, decision, we're banished to exist forever uh, in eternity apart from Him. And thus we are ruined and cannot fulfill that purpose with which He created us for. You know, we have, we live here on earth for, as Moses put it in, also in Psalm 90, uh, verse 10, you know, we're, we live here on earth for, you know, for Lucky, we get to live for uh, three score and ten or four score years, if by reason of strength, as Moses puts it. In other words, 70 or 80 years. <clears throat> and then our years are ended. Now, why don't we live longer? Sometimes we want to live longer. I don't know. I'm, you know, the way my body is breaking down, I don't think I want to live too much longer. You know, is that, I, I once heard uh, somewhere that, you know, when people get older, they, they get homesick for heaven. And <laughs> that's, that's understandable. We definitely get homesick, you know, when you're young, you know, and you don't have all these aches and pains. But the older you get, the more you want that, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, life with the Lord in heaven forever. The reason why we don't live longer is because God figures that's long enough for us to decide if we want to have that relationship with Him or not. And there's only one way to establish that relationship with Him, and that is we have to deal with the problem of sin. Sin separates us from God. For all have uh, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Death, again, is the separation. Death doesn't mean annihilation. Death means separation. Physical death, your, uh, the immaterial part of your body separates from your physical body. 
And spiritual death means that your spirit, your immaterial part, your soul is separated from God. And we're all born spiritually dead. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. God told them, in the day you partake of the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. That means the very moment, the very, not just the very day, the very uh, minute, the very second that they chose to disobey God, they died in their trespasses and sins. And now God provides a way that we can overcome that. The death of His Son. But the thing is, see, we have to respond to the truth of God as He gives it to us. Because if we reject it, every time we reject it, we harden our hearts, just like Pharaoh did. Yesterday I was listening to a message that Greg Laurie did. You know, I recorded it on my DVR and I was, you know, I, I liked doing that. Recorded on the DVR because then I can, uh, you know, sit down and listen to it and I can pause it, you know, or rewind it, you know, catch every word that he has to say. You know, I took a uh, half hour message of his and I spent two hours listening to it uh, yesterday. There was just so much good stuff in there. And he was talking about Moses before Pharaoh. Verse 8 15 of uh, Exodus chapter. Uh, Eight, But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and <clears throat> hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Then Greg Laurie pointed out a little bit later on in Exodus chapter 10 verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. And the heart of his servants, that I might shown by signs and wonders before him. What's he mean by signs and wonders? Well, see, the ten plagues of uh, uh, Egypt, those were designed to bring judgment upon the gods of Egypt. And they, they worshipped all kinds of weird things there in Egypt. They worshipped the Nile. Moses turned that to blood. They worshiped frogs. And God said, you, you want to uh, worship frogs? I'm going to give you all the frogs you want. And so then, you know, they just filled the land. And, uh, you know, Pharaoh didn't like that. You know, he says, oh, pray and ask that these um, frogs depart. So they, you know, the frogs all died and they gathered them into heaps. And then the, it says the land stank. That's what happens with sin. Is land, uh, sin stinks up your life, brother and sister. You know, and there was other things. There was flies and uh, locusts and things like that. They worshipped all these things. And God said, you know, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. You know, he's already hardened his heart. I'm going to make it even harder so that I can show my signs and wonders. The signs and wonders were that judgment upon all these different gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So, this is the theological chestnut. Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Or did God harden his heart? Some people say, well, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. Both statements are true. He hardened his, uh, 
his own heart, and then God just established him. The more he saw, the more he, his heart was hardened. All these different miracles. And think about the Pharisees, too. They knew about all the miracles that Jesus did. And what did they do? They hardened their hearts. Every miracle that Jesus did, and they didn't re, uh, repent uh, of their sins and turn to him as their Messiah, their heart was just hardened that much further. It got so bad that uh, shortly before they crucified him, he went to uh, Bethany and he ro raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead for four years. And you know, right after that, you, you know what it says? It says, the Pharisees said, what are we going to do? Everybody's following after him now. And they were making their plans to kill him at that moment. And you know what it says they did? They made plans to kill Lazarus also. Wow. Isn't that? That's a heavy thought. Their hearts were so hard, they were going to Even if they thought Jesus was guilty of pretending to be the Messiah, they're going to kill an innocent man as well. That's how hard their hearts had become by that point. Okay, so the lesson is, respond to the truth that you are given, brothers and sisters. Don't harden your heart. The lesson that we learn from the story about Moses before Pharaoh is that we make our own decision to embrace God and his ways or not. And whatever decision we make, God is going to confirm us in it. He is never going to violate your own free will. We, brothers and sisters, are ultimately the ones who make our decisions. And that's why we're responsible to God for the light he has given us. You know, don't worry about, you know, other people. Worry about you. That's what Jesus told Peter, or yeah, he told uh, he told Peter. You know, uh, God told Peter with the fate that he was going to suffer, that he was eventually going to be crucified, and that came true. He, church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down, and you know, Peter looks over and says, "What about him? What's going to happen to him?" You know what God told him? If I want him to live until I return. What is that to you? In other words, none of your business. You know, you let him worry about him. You just worry about you and the light that I have given you and the calling I have given you. So we decide ultimately our eternal fate. We decide if our heart is going to be tender and receive it or hard. That's why it says in Proverbs uh, chapter 4, verse 23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. How you act and what you say is going to depend on what's there in your heart. Out of the abundance, Jesus said, of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now some people say, well, I don't like this you know, matter of, you know, I'm supposed to live for God's pleasure. I want to live my life for my pleasure. You know, I heard uh, Chuck Smith talk about that one time. And Chuck Smith says, you know, that's the attitude of some people. He said, I don't like the fact that I'm supposed to live for God's pleasure. 
And Chuck Smith said, well, that's tough. That's the way you have been created. You have been created for God's pleasure. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, that if you live for pleasure, you are dead while you are yet live. Dead, referring to separated from God. Remember that death is separation, separation from God. Okay, I'm almost finished here. Do you live for God's pleasure? The end result of living for your pleasure, brothers and sisters, is a life of a deep, gnawing emptiness. Deep down inside, you know that there is something missing. And as I mentioned before, living for your own pleasure is the, really the essence of sin. It's really what sin is all about. And it's been said that within every person, God has created us. Part of the image of God, I think. You know, there's a God-shaped vacuum that can only be filled up by the living God. You know, um, when I was a missionary in Thailand, we used to pass out these tracks, you know. And one of them... Uh, was captioned uh, uh, Hugh Maisrang and when I asked the Thai people what it meant they said basically it just means always hungry never full and shows on the, the cover there this really big fat man you know and he's surrounded with all these uh, different kinds of foods you know meat and potatoes and cake and ice cream and all these things and he's stuffing himself and that's a picture of man without God always hungry that deep gnawing feeling within him because you were created to fellowship with the living God and to bring him pleasure and that's why there's so many man-made religions they are, these are man's attempt to fill that vacuum up but they're doing it with gods of their own making instead of the true and living God. And all these man-made religions ultimately will not bring us pleasure into this, uh, into life, you know, union with the true and living God. And without the true and living God, again, we are doomed to exist eternally uh, separated from Him. Now, whatever hell is, and I'm not going to go into detail about it. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm finished, you know, with talking about this subject. I know one thing about uh, hell. And believe me, Jesus preached more about hell than any other, uh, you know, writer in the New Testament. So according to Jesus, it's a real place. Whatever hell is... God will not be there. And for that reason, you know, because it says in James chapter 1 verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of heavenly lights with their, whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of changing. Amen. So God is not there. 
And so we separate ourselves from everything that is good and perfect in this life. And I don't want that in my life. And I hope none of you want it either. So I've given you plenty to think on uh, today. Uh, I think I've got still more to say about this. But let's go ahead into the closing song. And uh, go ahead and cue that up if you would, uh, uh, Susie.